Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we are also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for that last song we just sang. I thank You that You are a great God, that You are beyond our ability to comprehend, that You are mysterious and unknown, that Your power is so great, that You rule over everything in this universe with Your Word. And yet, Lord, even though You're such a great God, we praise You that You would condescend, that You would draw close to a people like us, that You would make Yourself known to us, that You would even take our form, that You would even walk among us. Lord, it is amazing. And your greatness and your humility uh, make us stand in awe of you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, as we think about some big concepts today, some, some huge theological ideas, I pray that that same thing would happen, that you might draw close to us in the midst of it. That, Lord, you would minister to individuals here who are hurting this morning, who are confused, who have doubts, who are struggling with sin, struggling with failures in their lives. Lord, I pray that you might walk with us and you might meet us here that you, the great God, would condescend to speak to our hearts individually. We thank you that you're that kind of God, and we wait expectantly to hear what you're going to say to us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look back at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we studied this verse last week. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, in Christ. We looked at that verse last week and we saw that the Christian life is the most blessed, the most happy life possible. That to be in Christ is to be buried in blessings. To be a Christian is to be drowned in blessings. And, and we saw the last week that just motivates Paul to praise God. And it raises a question, what blessings is Paul talking about? Why is it so great to be a Christian? What's so wonderful about knowing Christ? Well, we saw last week then in verses 4 through 14, Paul goes on to elaborate what those blessings are. And in fact, you remember this, we saw last week, that that in Greek, not in English, but in Greek, that's one sentence. From verses 3 to 14, it's just one 
huge run-on sentence. And Paul just, he's so filled up with praise and worship and how great God is, he just doesn't take a breath. You know, it takes a big breath at the beginning of verse 3 and then just... And, you know, ends at verse 14. He's so filled up with the blessings of God. And so what I want to do over the next coming weeks is just to go through verses 4 to 14 slowly and identify what the blessings are. I just want to take time to ruminate upon each blessing, to think with you what it means to be blessed in Christ, and to, as they used to say in the old days, count your blessings. Name them one by one. I want to think through with you what our blessings are in Christ to see if it is in fact true what Paul is saying, that that God has given us every spiritual blessing. To see if it really is true that the happiest life is life with Jesus. And so today we start with blessing number one. If you could take out your sermon notes inside your bulletin. Sort of thicker today. You've got the Boston Sunday Globe version of the sermon notes. Uh, Look at Ephesians. It says in the front, Ephesians 1, 4, 11 to 12. Today we're going to look at blessing number one that Paul talks about. Blessing number one. The first blessing is that we are chosen in Christ. Chosen in Christ. Or if you want to put it another way, the first blessing is predestination. (laughs) I know you're going, what? (laughs) Is that a blessing? Or, you know, because every time I think about predestination, I just get a headache. You know, what what do you mean it's a blessing? What is this? what does Paul mean? Obviously, he, we read through the passage, he mentions predestination or God's choosing us about three, four times. So obviously, Paul thinks it's some sort of blessing. So, you know, where's the blessing in predestination? I find that most Christians, when they wrestle with the doctrine of predestination, you know, it's just like, oh, it's so big. I mean, it sounds interesting, and I'm sure it's interesting, but I don't know. Just leave it for those, you know, pointy-headed people in the seminaries to just wrestle with that kind of doctrine. Um, you know, we've tried to think about it, but it's very confusing. We get lost in all the arguments and counter-arguments, and our heads swim very quickly. My head swims very quickly, anyway. I won't speak for you. Um, and and another, another thing that happens is when you start looking into this doctrine, you quickly come up against what I like to call the wall of mystery. You know, you start looking into it, and you realize there's some things here that we can never fully understand. And you bump up against this wall, and you try to find a way around it, and it... You can't get around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it. And so we quick, some people say, you know, I can't fully understand this, so what's the point? And we walk away from it, because there is mystery in this. I will tell you straight on this morning, I do not fully understand this doctrine. I cannot comprehend it, I cannot put it into a a formula for you, I cannot totally get my mind around it, so I'm not going to be fully able to explain it to your satisfaction this morning. So just so you know that going into it. But I think what, what I see, at least as I've talked to Christians informally, is that Christians, I think, walk away from the doctrine too quickly. Yes, we cannot fully understand it, but I think sometimes we just sort of, well, it's, that's big, that's, un, that's confusing, so I, I back away from it. And we don't get the blessings that are there. Because I think there are some things that can be known about it, that the Bible does teach. You know, as they say, there's gold in them thar hills. Uh, but it takes a little time to dig in them thar hills to get the gold. And so what I want to do this morning for the next 25 minutes or so here is just do a little digging. And just have this be sort of a, a, a free zone where we can take time to think about something that we usually don't think about. And then let us see if, in fact, there is a great blessing to be found in knowing the fact that God has predestined us for salvation. So first of all, let's look back at the text. <clears throat> Verse 4. Let's look at some of the, the predestination language. It says, For he chose us, 
in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Chose us before the creation of the world. There's that idea. It comes again in verse 5. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Or even in verse uh, uh, 7, you kind of get a sense of God's plan, even though it doesn't talk specifically about predestination. It says in verse 7, In him we have have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Here's the idea of God having a thought-out plan that he's executing. Or in verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So again, there's this mysterious secret will that God has that he's purposed in Christ, and he's putting it into motion. But then in verses 11, uh, verse 11, we get another clear statement like verse 5. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So you have a lot of different words, ideas, and phrases talking about God's predestining, God's choosing, God's plan. The same thing is, in, is true in Greek. If you look at your sermon notes, there's uh, four Greek words there on the front. It's all Greek to me, right? Uh, <clears throat> you have in verse 4, eklego. We get the word uh, elect from that. Uh, eclectic means to choose, uh, to, to, to appoint somebody. Uh, it was sometimes used in Greek um, culture to describe the election process in the polis. People would vote for uh, the, the political leaders. Then you have this word praorizo, which means to determine beforehand. Pra means before. Orizo, to, to ordain, to determine something. So you determine something before it happens. Klerao uh, is, is sort of a, a word related to inheritance. To choose by lot. To choose as one's portion. That's the idea of, of that word. And then also in verse 11 you have prophesis, which means a plan. So that God has a plan that he's working out. So you put all this together and, and you get a sense that Before we came into existence, before the creation of the world, God predetermined, chose ahead of time to set his blessings on certain individuals and to save certain people. That's the the doctrine. It's also known more specifically as the doctrine of election, that God has elected certain people to be saved. Well, that's, that's the idea. As you can see, that's a big doctrine. I mean, it's, it's just hard already. I'm going, woo. You know, how, how do I fully understand this? There's all kinds of issues that come up um, that, that we're going to look at a little bit. Christians, down through the centuries, by and large, and there's always a few fringe, Christians have affirmed that God does predestine. It's very difficult to get around that in Scripture. God chooses and determines things before they happen because He's God. And you see that in Scripture. The debate in Christian circles, the in-house debate, has been more about how that takes place. You know, what, what are the mechanics of predestination? You know, how does it work? All right, God chooses some people beforehand, but why? On what basis? How does that all happen? And so that's, that's where the debate is. If you look on page two of the sermon notes, specifically, this is one of the major questions. One of the major questions in that debate. Here's the question. What is the basis for God's choosing some to be saved? That's the the heart of the issue. God's chosen some 
He obviously chose to leave others as is, but he chose to, to place his grace upon some. So why? You know, why did God choose A and not B? What's the basis of his choosing? And that has been more the, the debate within Christian circles down through the centuries, all the way back to Augustine and Pelagius and you know, Luther and uh, uh, you know, Arminius and Calvin and even into the modern uh, era. This is more the question, what is the basis of God's choosing some to be saved? And historically, there's two answers to the questions. The first answer to the question is this, that God chooses conditionally. I want you to write that word down, conditionally. Or in other words, God makes a decision to choose some, but it's based upon certain conditions being fulfilled. Okay? So, so it's kind of like this. Um, often this is how it's, it's constructed. As God is he's about to create the world. He knows everything that's going to happen. And he can look down the timeline of eternity, and he can see me. And he can see that under certain circumstances, if I was offered the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would accept it. And God says, okay, I see that that's what Jeremy will do. I see that's the kind of person Jeremy is. Therefore, I choose him. See that? So that God choosing me is based upon something that he knows about me. Or another way it's sometimes framed is this. You know, God is outside of time. He's, he's sort of, you know, he doesn't see past, present, and future. He just sees everything. We think in terms of past, present, and future because we're inside of time, but he's outside of time. And so he looks down and he just sees me. He sees the fact that in the future, which is my future, but his present, I will choose to accept the gospel. And so because he knows that about me, he says, okay, I predestined Jeremy, I choose Jeremy. That's the idea of conditional predestination. Or uh, less theologically and more sort of kitschy, as one uh, uh, preacher put it, he says, this is what election means. God voted for you, Satan voted against you, and the deciding vote's up to you. You know, It's your choice. And if you will choose Christ, that is, that is what God bases his decision on. So that God's decision logically anyway, not, not temporally because of God's outside of time and whew, you know, that gets confusing real fast. But logically anyway, God is basing his decision on our decision so that he's responding to what we will do. So that in a sense, we're kind of the deciding factor. So that's conditional predestination. And it's one understanding of how it works. And then there's another view. The second answer to the question, generally speaking, and again, I'm, I'm painting with broad brush strokes. There's all kinds of little sub positions within these broad camps. But, but the second major uh, constellation of viewpoints would be what we call unconditional predestination. Unconditional. Which is the idea that God isn't basing his decision on anything in us, foreseen in us. He's, he's in no way interacting with what he knows about us. But that God is, for whatever reason, from within himself, choosing some to be saved. He's, he's determining it ahead of time. It's not based on anything he sees in me, knows about me. He just has decided within his own will and his own good pleasure to do that. And we say, why, God? Why did you do it that way? And there's no real answer. He's, he says, well, this is my will. This is my good pleasure. This is my mysterious purpose, my secret wisdom. But it comes from within God's self. It's not conditioned upon anything outside of God's self. So those are kind of two positions, trying to, to paint the, uh, the landscape for you. So let's look at Ephesians 1. Um, Ephesians 1, I think, is a great text to, to ask this question of because next to Romans chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 1 is, I, I think, the most full explanation of this doctrine that we have in Scripture. Romans 9 is the only one that's, that's more full and more expansive. But look at Ephesians 1. I want to look at four phrases. First of all, in verse 4, 
Look at that little phrase, in Him. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. God makes a choice in reference to somebody, but it's Christ. The Him is Christ. The Him is not me. The Him is Christ. So, so already we see God is, is choosing based upon Christ and, and what, what He wants in Christ, not necessarily on me. So that's not quite decisive, but it kind of leads in, in, in a particular direction. Or then look at the next phrase. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Now, that could just be sort of a, a temporal statement. Like, God created the world, but before He created the world, He chose some. But, but I think there's something more to it than that. Um, I mean, obviously, he, he did it before the creation of the world. So, so I think what God is saying is, is that He did it without reference to the world, without reference to the creation itself. Look at this quote here. In other words, I would agree with this quote in your sermon notes by Peter O'Brien. He says that to say that election took place before the creation of the world indicates that God's choice was due to his own free decision and love, which were not dependent on temporal circumstances or human merit. The reasons for his election were rooted in the depths of his gracious, sovereign nature. But although those are you know, lean in that direction, this next verse is, is just so clear. It's astounding. Look at verse 5. In love... He predestined us, there it is, to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with, okay? In other words, on the basis of, based upon, according to. So in other words, we have right here a statement of the basis. What is the basis of God's choosing some? His pleasure and will. And if it's not enough, look at verse 11. The fourth phrase, in Him we were also chosen, having been predestined, based on what? According to what? What's the, why does God predestine us? According to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Here it is, clearly stated in Scripture, God's choosing of us is not based upon anything He sees in us. It is based upon His good pleasure alone. It's the pleasure of His will. It's based on what He wants to do, not based on anything He knows about us. He's not reacting to us. He's not improvising based on us. He's choosing. And it's based on His own pleasure and will. Someone might say, well, maybe His pleasure and will was to foresee faith in us. Well, you're begging the question. I mean, you know, you're assuming the answer. We have to look at the text to find out what the answer to the question is, and it tells us it's according to His pleasure and will. Predestination is a great mystery. I do not pretend to understand it all. I do not pretend to be able to explain it all to you. I still wrestle with it. I can still stay up nights trying to figure it out. But I'll tell you, there is one thing we can say for certain about predestination. It is unconditional. That much has been revealed in God's Word. This idea that God is basing His decision on me is foreign to the understanding of the Scriptures. God is sovereign. We're always worried about our free will, but what about God's free will? God is the only one who has absolutely sovereign free will. God's decision to choose me was not based on anything He foresaw in me, knew about me, considered about me. He simply chose me because He is a good and gracious God. And in His own plan that I do not understand, He chose me. It's not based on anything in myself. Now, does that raise a lot of philosophical questions? Yeah. 
we could probably do another five sermon series just on the philosophical challenges to unconditional predestination. So I'm guessing you don't want to do that, though. Uh, we'll probably move on. So uh, what I've done instead is if you look in your sermon notes on pages, this is why this is like the Sunday Globe. If you look on pages five through eight in the sermon notes, I listed frequently asked questions about unconditional predestination. I don't want to spend this morning digging into the philosophical issues because I don't think that the point of this text is primarily to debate philosophy. We'll get to that in a minute. But if you look here, uh, common questions like number one, doesn't the idea of God's unconditional predestination deny our free will? That's a good question. Number two, uh, isn't it unfair of God to predestine some to turn to him while leaving others in bondage to sin? Doesn't that seem kind of arbitrary and unfair? Or if you look on the next page, uh, number five, here's a common question. If God's already chosen who will be saved, then why pray for people to be saved or why do evangelism? You know, it's like, what's the point? <laughs> it's all just, we're just all big cogs in a machine, who cares? It doesn't matter. <clears throat> or verse number six on the very back. I haven't quite put my faith in Christ. I'm unsure whether or not I'm really a Christian. What if I'm just not predestined to be saved? That's a good question. That's a real personal one. So what I've done is just some very intro responses to those questions. This is not, you know, exhaustive. Just to kind of whet your appetite and get you thinking and point you in directions, but to leave that up to you. <clears throat> but here's the bottom line. Is God God or not? Can he do as he pleases or not? See, I think there's something within us as human beings that instinctively recoils against the idea that we're not at the center of everything. You know, we go, we just sort of go, oh, what do you mean? It doesn't all hinge on me? It's not all about me? And our brains kind of go, uh, you mean, you mean it's not based upon me? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, no. It's based upon his good pleasure. And we have a hard time getting our minds around us not being in the center. It just does not sit well with us. It's a great quote on page three of the sermon notes, one that convicted me big time. If you look on page three, there's a box in the upper right-hand corner. Second quote down is by Dr. G. D. James Kennedy, uh, down at Coral Ridge Presbyterian in Florida. This is a great quote. I, I got really convicted. He says, the reason people today are opposed to it, that is this doctrine, is because they will have God to be anything but God. He can be a cosmic psychiatrist, a helpful shepherd, a leader, a teacher, anything at all, only not God, for a very simple reason. They want to be God themselves. Let me give you the bottom line. I give myself the bottom line. <laughs> he is God. He is God. And let me say it one more time. <laughs> he is God. And I am not, uh, which is obvious. <laughs> and we are not. And he can do as he pleases. So I don't fully understand this doctrine, but I bow and worship before the God who is so great that my mind cannot get around his ways. I love this quote right above it by Charles Spurgeon in the upper right-hand corner. Spurgeon believed in unconditional predestination. He said, can you understand it? For I cannot. How a man is a free agent, a responsible agent, so that his sin is his own willful sin, 
and lies with him and never lies with God, and yet at the same time, God's purposes are fulfilled, and his will is done even by demons and corrupt men. I cannot comprehend it. Without hesitation, I believe it and rejoice to do so, but I never hope to comprehend it. I worship a God I never expected to comprehend. Well, back to the text. Remember that when Paul was talking about this, though, he was not talking about it from a philosophical standpoint. That's why I didn't want to get into all the philosophical ins and outs this morning. Not because there's not good answers, and not because I'm, I'm afraid to deal with that stuff. You know, I love to haggle those things. But um, I didn't want to get into it because I don't think that's what Paul's main thrust is in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 is not primarily a philosophical polemic. Ephesians 1 is primarily an expression of worship and praise. And so I wanted to go with the tone of Ephesians 1. For, obviously for Paul, unconditional predestination is making him jump up in the air and click his heels together. You know, there's something about it that's making him go, So what is so great about this doctrine that just seems so challenging? Well, let us just, in closing here briefly, think of three things that pre free predestination means or unconditional or sovereign predestination means in your sermon notes. Number one, it means our lives are part of God's eternal plan. That's the first thing it means. Our lives are, not, are part of God's eternal plan. If you uh, put a little bookmark or something in Ephesians 1, we'll come back to it. And then go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 28, on page 1119, just a few pages back, 1119, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Very, very familiar verse, but it's one that sustained many Christians through dark hours. Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to his foreseen faith, in, I mean, according to his purpose, right? According to his purpose, he's called us, and we know that God is working out all things for our good if he's called us. A radically incredible promise, that is, to know that everything that's happening in my life is ultimately for my, my good. Or to put it this way, in some sense, a Christian can never make a wrong choice in life, in a certain sense. You go, wait a minute, what do you mean? Can't Christians sin? Yeah, isn't that wrong? Yeah. But, but in an ultimate big picture sense, God is going to use everything in my life, even my worst failures, even when I crash and burn and fall on my face and just totally blow it, God is even using that in his eternal plan to bring me to himself and for my ultimate good. That, that I can get back up off the ground knowing that God is going to use even my worst failures for him and that some way that I don't even understand, he's even included that as part of his plan. You know, God is not improvising. God is not sort of reacting. He's not saying, okay, you did this, all right, okay, I guess I'll do that. Oh, you did that, okay. You know, he's not sort of reacting and improvising to what we're doing. It's all part of his plan. He works out all things, Roman, I mean Ephesians 1.11, all things in conformity with the purpose of his will. So your life is not random. Your life is not meaningless. No matter what it is you're going through right now, God is using it, if you're in Christ, for your ultimate good. No matter how bad and nasty and hurting it is, God's using it as part of his plan so that in the end you will look back and say, praise God for what he did in my life. You will be able to look back and say that. Number two, uh, the second blessing I see of unconditional predestination 
is that nothing can separate us from God's love. This is again Romans 8. Paul is considering unconditional predestination. He's considering what God has done for us. And he says in verse 31 of Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or again in verse 37, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God oh, except human free will, right? <laughs> no! <laughs> Nothing in creation! God has me in His hand. And even in those times when I'm struggling and fighting, He is working His good pleasure out in me. His, my salvation is based upon God, and nothing is going to separate me from His love when He has decided to put it upon me. Nothing can separate me from His love. Not even my stupid choices and missteps in life. God's love was set upon me unconditionally, so that means there's no conditions in my life that are going to break that love. Could you imagine? Let me throw this one out at you. Could you imagine what it would be like if God's love for you was contingent upon your ability to keep walking the walk? <laughs> wow. Could you imagine if, if God's salvation that He's given you was contingent upon your ability to, to, to keep going the course and keep the faith? What a terrifying thought. But that's not what we find in the Scriptures. We find those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. And I'm in His hand. And then finally, number three. Predestination means, blessing number one, our lives are part of God's eternal plan. My life is not meaningless. Number two, nothing can separate us from God's love. And number three, our hearts fill up with praise for God's grace. If you look back at Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, verse 5. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and wills because what He wanted to do. <clears throat> but then why? What's the ultimate goal? What's the end game? of Predestination is the beginning. What's the end game? Verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. So that when I understand that my salvation comes totally from God, that it doesn't hinge upon me, that it's a gift of God, I am filled up with praise for His grace. The fact is, if, if it was ultimately hinging upon my accepting or rejecting Christ, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be grace. I believe conditional predestination uh, defames God's grace and defames God's glory. But if we see that God is the one who has chosen me, and that it was based upon Him, and it's not based upon me, then His grace is extolled. I see that it was His grace from beginning to end and all the way in between, that it was God's good grace that saved me. Well, anyway, there you go. <laughs> Download complete. Um, <laughs> something to talk about. Talk amongst yourselves, right? Um, it, what a great doctrine this is. But, you know, I understand that it's a hard one. Keep wrestling through it. I'll tell you my own story and just close with this story. I uh, probably wrestled with this doctrine the most when I was in seminary. And probably more than any other biblical idea or concept, this was the one that gave me the worst fits. This is the one that stayed, kept me up late at night praying, arguing with people, debating. 
I spent probably two years in hardcore, you know, wrestling with the angel in the middle of the night like Jacob did, trying to figure this doctrine out. And that was the one I wrestled with the most. And as I was at seminary, I noticed it's probably the one that most people wrestled with the most. So if you're wrestling with it, that's okay, you know. You have two years to figure it out. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so, so I wrestled with it. And, and near the end of that process, I, I had this professor, and this, this issue kept coming up. No matter where we went in class, it was like a black hole. We kept coming back to that issue. It kept sucking us in. And he would go, uh-oh, I feel a free will and sovereignty night coming on. And then the next you know, class, some, it would come up again. He'd go, uh-oh, I feel a free will and sovereignty night coming on. And after it, it happened several times, he said, okay, free will and sovereignty night. He goes, my house, you know, Thursday night or whatever it was. He goes, just bring your Bibles and come. And so about 12 of us showed up, the people who are really you know, in the throes of this, this process. And, and what we did was, he said, here's what we're going to do. He goes, open your Bibles to any text you want that relates to sovereignty or predestination that, that you're wrestling with, and we'll just talk about it. And we'll just debate it right here. And, and that was so great for me because I had spent two years understanding the philosophical implications and, and the different uh, constructions and looking at church history and Wesley versus Whitfield and Augustine versus Pelagius. And I was looking at all the, you know, and I could lay out all the philosophical understandings and Jonathan Edwards' understanding of desire and the will and, and being moral ability and natural ability and all these different concepts. But finally, this professor just said, okay, open up your Bible again. And so it was sort of like the, the, I came full circle. Because I started questioning it because of the Bible. And then I went full circle and came around. And as I opened up my Bible, we just went through text after text. And, and he would, you just had to, you had to make the argument. It's like, can you really argue that? Can you really argue that? And it was as I went through God's Word, not philosophical objections, but the Word of God, looking at specific phrases, what God has said in His Word, that it finally just came crashing down on me. And I just said, you are God. And you are sovereign. And you can do whatever you want, even if it doesn't make perfect sense to me. And I have to tell you, a, a, such a sense of not despair, but worship flooded up in my soul as I began to see that I worship and serve a God who is so great and so awesome. And that's my prayer for, the, for you, that as you wrestle through this, as you see God's great sovereign hand in your life, that even if you can't fully put your mind around it, that your heart would just explode with worship and praise. So keep wrestling. Feel free to come up after the service and punch me out. Whatever. We can argue. That's great. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. God, there is no God like you. You have chosen us before the foundation of the world purely by your sovereign, unconditional, free choice. Lord, you alone are free. We are slaves to sin. We're not free. We're slaves to sin. We need you to save us out of that. We couldn't choose you if we wanted to, and we don't want to. But Lord, you chose us, and you changed our hearts so that we could respond to your free offer of the gospel. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that your greatness and your majesty would be communicated to us now, that we might worship you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's out of work, who's sick, who's going through some relational or marriage or family just blowout. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's lost, who's struggling with an addiction in their life, struggling with sin, that they might come to the foot of this great doctrine and just surrender their lives to it and know that you, God, have their lives in your hands. 
that their salvation is ultimately not based upon their ability to work it out, but upon your ability to work it through in them. And so, Lord, we just come and depend upon you for everything. Not that this excuses us from our responsibility to serve, to pray, to work, to obey, but, Lord, we realize that all the work we do is built upon the foundation of your great work, and it's a response to it. So, Lord, we just worship and praise you. Fill our hearts up with glory. In Jesus' name.